anger, sexual lust, the sorts of things that you experience when you're playing a video game. All these concepts originated with Karl Marx. Hey everyone, you're listening to AGAB, All Gamers Are Bastards, the only podcast that is officially being sued by Nintendo. I'm your host, Kay. As always, uh, I am joined by the 30-foot-tall titan that we call Labor Kyle. How you doing, Kyle? I'm, I'm doing well. I, uh, I am, in fact, 30 feet tall and uh, being uh, eviscerated by Nintendo's lawyers, which is um, the Co- the Koopa Koopa Troopa. Um, they're yes. very litigious. Um, they were they were they were uh, animated to be very litigious. Um, but uh, now, do you think that has something to do with them being turtles? Yes, I think it has quite a bit um, to do with that. You know, because they're. They use their they use their legal prowess to protect all the secrets you know that they have in their shells, and uh, what are they keeping in yeah, there? What are they up to? What are these guys doing? <laughs> yeah, though they're not trustworthy. Um, no turtle should really be trusted. They have um, they have a wisdom about them, but it's a devious wisdom, and I think that we need to be more honest about that. It might not be politically correct to say it, right. but we. We need to say it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's not um, fashionable um, to be aggressively and explicitly anti-turtle. It's really it, it all comes from a war between our podcast and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is longstanding and very serious. Yeah, because they have their own podcast. Yep, that's right, and they know what they did. Holy fuck! Actually, hold on. the The turtles are actually uh, such an obvious podcast crew when you think about it yeah why right like why can't ash and john be here so we can all figure out which one which one we are (laughs) we're all i mean we can at least figure we can figure ourselves out right because i mean i mean um because leonardo he's kind of like a lot of podcasts will have sort of a, a straight man figure who does a lot of the Setting the premise of what's being discussed, that's a clear Leonardo situation. Sure. Donatello's coming in with that kind of specialist knowledge. Uh, Michelangelo, of course, is just the riff machine. Right. You need one of those. Uh, Raphael, I feel like he's there to get kind of, he's there to go off King, you know, yeah. when it gets like a, onto a spicier topic. He's the one who gets clipped and maybe <laughs> sometimes he goes a little too far and he, he gets gets clipped in an unfavorable way. But he, he's that's that's the function he serves, I think, you know? Yeah, that's right. The the cool guy can only go so far um before, you know, they need to be uh edited. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I feel like none of us are are really uh, a contender for Raphael. I feel like we need I think we just need to be spicier. Um I think that's really the key to, to perfecting this podcast. Um, so what I'm going to do is every time we record, I'm going to have like a big hat with a bunch of pieces of paper and every one of them will have a slur on it. And I'll just pick one out. And then whichever one comes out, 
Uh, I'm just I'm just gonna drop it in there, right. and <laughs> I'm not gonna tell anyone what it is or, or how I'm gonna do it. We're gonna drop it in in that uh, in the computer. <laughs> all gamers are bastard voice the the, te- oh, the text to speech. <laughs> 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 do you want to know which which slur is the computer gonna say stick around till the end of the episode and you'll find out that's right and people start to notice a pattern that it, it's really heavily weighted towards uh, anti-italian slurs yeah almost exclusive uh, almost exclusively yeah we're gonna get fucking we're gonna get canceled by the uh, italian anti-defamation league <laughs> Is that real or is that just for the Sopranos? I don't actually know. <laughs> That's great. I I still have not watched the final season of the Sopranos. I've been I I finished season 5 and then I've been so fucking busy that I just I don't know. I feel like I want to really make time for it. It's I've heard that it's it's one of the better seasons and it's I don't know. It's such a good show. I want to watch it right, you know. Something that was in the news uh, a week ago or a week and a bit was Nintendo uh, announced that they're going to be closing the 3DS and Wii U eShops in March of 2023, which, as you can imagine, got a pretty pretty negative response from a lot of people, especially people who are concerned with uh, you know preservation of art, because there are a lot of digital-only games that are going to be impossible to get anymore and i mean this is bad on its own but this is made a lot worse by the fact that nintendo is infamously litigious uh, about emulators um in i think it was like 2018 they went on a real lawsuit warpath and a lot of the big sites had to close down including mu paradise who those are my boys that was my go-to for like a decade um and they i don't i don't think they actually got directly sued or they might have been threatened with it but other big ones were sued so they just they bailed they ran away they got rid of everything and a a lot of sites got out ahead of it because they were like oh fuck we're (laughs) we are in danger now from this company um but the thing is if you're going to do that you then have a fucking responsibility to make sure that all of this stuff is available through legitimate means, and Nintendo just doesn't give a shit at all about that. They'd rather it all be gone, and then, you know, maybe one or two of the more popular titles, they can sell you a a remake in five years' time, or or a remaster, or something. Um, So... Yeah, the the Nintendo bottleneck coming back with a fucking vengeance. Mm. They know what they're doing. Like... They don't have to. There's a reason why the the value of their product doesn't degrade in the same often very precipitous way that other consoles do is because they have such a strict control over everything to where, yeah, shit like this happens. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. They really do stand out um, amongst the game companies uh, because of the way that they do that. Like nothing. They don't get PC ports or anything like that. Uh, often the tech that they use is not kind of in keeping with what like um, Sony and Microsoft will be doing at any given time. They really do their own thing and they make it really difficult to get access to any of their stuff through any means except directly through them. Um, and again, their their litigious behavior towards emulator sites just adds to that. Uh 
and fucking shout out to people who do the 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 often like legally dangerous work of emulating because like without these people there's lots of games that would be off the fucking face of the earth you know just gone or or yeah. maybe there'd be like you might be able to buy like a, a a a physical version of the game that's like you know 30 years old um and it costs like fucking you know $50,000 cuz there's hardly any of them in existence which is you know that means it's functionally impossible to get <laughs> like that doesn't count really um and it's it these companies having just an unending control over these IPs even when they aren't even selling them anymore uh is such a fucking blight on the industry and it makes it so hard for compared to any other art form really it makes it so fucking hard to preserve it um like the it, it's easier to preserve uh you know a, a record or or some film um because there's a certain degree of um there's a certain degree of like it's universal right what you can play video or music on to a certain degree if you've got something on a fucking cd you don't have to worry about it um and you can it's a lot easier to burn like a fucking mp3 or something to a physical uh sort of medium as well whereas games are often really designed to function with specific systems just like with any other like distribution is things become kind of dicey but like it's hard to i mean it, it's it gets really difficult to put a pro to put a sort of like a like a literal price on everything that gets lost versus the recoup what what gets recouped by people who are able willing um just out of a you know a love for the medium or whatever uh to you know to make roms and uh, of games and stuff and then how much of that sort of like lost art gets recouped but at the cost of you know however many labor hours of people who are just sort of like out of you know out of a out of joy mm. which there's nothing wrong with that necessarily like not everything has to be for money for sure but like you know it's it, it just shows that there's it's a very it's a very broken system simply you know? i think i think the fact that it's often not for money is what can make it so frustrating like mu paradise wasn't selling games you know they weren't making i never gave them a fucking penny uh, they probably like ask for donations now and then, like for site costs, but th it wasn't like a. They didn't have like a big profit model. Um, they were giving people access to things that they they just couldn't get. You couldn't go out and buy like an original Game Boy version of uh, a fucking. Uh, was there ever a Metroid game on the original game? I don't think there was. I think it went Super Nintendo then Advance, but you couldn't go buy like a Super Nintendo fucking metroid game you couldn't just walk down to the store and grab one of those you know uh you emulation was the way you would have to access that unless you fucking had something from when you were a kid in a closet somewhere or were able to pay potentially like deranged amounts of money to get your hand on a physical copy but that would be secondhand anyway nintendo's not getting a penny you know and and that's the galling thing about so much of this they're not selling this it's not like they're uh, 
if if this was people uploading like recent releases like Switch games and stuff, I'd see you know, I'd understand why they would want to spend time like attacking that, but this they're not competing with fucking Super Nintendo emulators, you know? <laughs> Right, there's so many Super Nintendo games. There's like, it's, I don't know, it's just, and once the, like, with hardware too, and cartridge-based hardware, like, you can change the batteries in those things. Like, it's not hard to do, but like, what happens when the battery runs out and there isn't a, a, a like, a, you can't i don't know how people get their hands on currently manufactured batteries like replacement batteries for cartridges but like what do you just like what do you do like it, it's it, and it and it's more than anything like that's sort of like I, I i like this how this conversation works because we can use it to talk about sort of emulation as well as to sort of think into the future like okay like what is this like not not only is it private industry, but it's video games, so it's going to get yeah. worse. How is it going to get worse? Um, which you know, with everything going digital, um, there's just more. Like, well, we'll we'll continuously have less say in how things go. That sort of a thing. Yeah, like the industry has so clearly been pushing for non-ownership models like stadia was meant to be that i i don't even know what the fuck is happening with stadia anymore like they dropped it but i feel like it's maybe getting revived or maybe they're just gutting it to do something else i don't know um but like things like the game pass um on xbox and and pc or is it just a pc thing i don't know it's probably both uh where you just you pay a subscription and then it's like netflix you get access to these games you don't own them and it's interesting because the Game Pass does not generally include DLC. You have to purchase the DLC. So you now own attachments to a game that you do not own. And if you want to access that game, you got to keep fucking up in your, or, or you know, re-upping your, your subscription every month, right? Um, so it's it's a model that seems pretty obviously designed to trap people into this subscription model where they don't fucking own their games at all. Um, and there's nothing to stop them just taking a game off and then it's gone. And maybe you owned DLC that you paid extra money for. Well, fucking game's gone. It's not on the, the pass anymore, you know? Um, just like fucking movies and shows come and go from Netflix all the time. It's such a... It's a model that is so obviously not in the interest of the consumer, and that's why they've met a lot of resistance uh, implementing these sorts of things, but they clearly want to. They're clearly every year coming up with new ways to do it, to sell it. The Game Pass right now is really cheap. Often, at least I often get advertised deals where you can get like a month for like a pound, a queen buck, if you will. Um <laughs> and that cheapness is only going to last until they feel that they've got like enough of a monopoly on the player base and then they're cranking that shit up because you're invested now you bought DLC for these games on here you not fucking you know you've you've spent 
you've got like months, maybe years of subscription invested. So like it would be extra money now to quit and then buy these games that you already had access to. That's the plan, I think, pretty transparently. And it's not going to be good for media preservation fucking at all. All gamers are bastards. Hi there. Thank you very much for playing The Beginner's Guide. My name is Davey Reedon. I wrote The Stanley Parable. And while that game tells a pretty absurd story, today I'm going to tell you about a series of events that happened between 2008 and 2011. Uh, what we're going to do is talk about a little video game that actually came out, I think, a few years ago. Um, I think we're late to the party on this, but it got recommended to me by the wonderful Reese from Video Games Are the Worst Thing on Earth, uh, which I think is a podcast. I don't know. You'd have to Google it. I'm not really sure what it is. Um, we're going to talk today about The Beginner's Guide. Kyle, how did you find this game? What did you, what, what is kind of your initial reaction to it? I thought it was uh, kind of the kind of the perfect one shot sort of ninety minute experience. It it wasn't like any other video game experience I've ever had. Mm. I mean, in some in some ways, like it's a it's a lyrical sort of like video game essay, primarily the engine of a of a story between an a narrating protagonist and a a, a a friend an acquaintance a, a sort of colleague of uh, that protagonist and the uh, um, the games that the latter character made um, and from what we can gather from the story sent to the narrator um, so the already we're kind of like embroiled in this conversation between two people and very quickly it becomes apparent that this is a game about the sort of gaps between sort of like text and reader and sort of the the uh, um the the the, the gaps between difference and sort of correlations between people and ideas and texts um and it's a really incredibly interesting and as far as i can tell completely unique sort of elevation of the prefigurative phenomena that comes before writing mm -hmm. um and how there's just this it, it it was able to be so personal and very emotionally driven yeah. and very moving um, while also demonstrating these yeah, gaps and sort of variations in these gaps between the sort of a text's presentation and our interpretation of that text. And not only this, but how the player with the game and then within that game the game is all 
centered around a metatextual environment. Yeah. And like there's all of these presuppositions within the game between the relationship between the two characters that are then deconstructed and shown like they they recohere around various concerns that the narrator presents for their 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 friend we'll say we'll say or colleague who makes these games and then that's immediately contrasted with you know sort of what happened to them which is that it's, it's it's like it's both very personal but it's also very much about and in my opinion is very much um about tensions between text and interpretation in and how the sort of like a, a, the game itself doesn't need to be a systematic video game, um, particularly when it's already deconstructing. Um, and it only co- what it does is it, it coheres around these metatextual presuppositions between these two characters, mm-hmm. um, assumptions in their relationship, cons- assumptions and concern from one for the other, and then a disruption of that idea. Um, and then a, a, a shattering and a fragmenting between those two characters. Um, and then this sort of like, it, 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 the game, its own interpretation of its own, its interpretation of its own metatextual content is in this sort of ongoing process, um, that's demonstrated by the fundamental gaps between the two characters, Dave and Coda, and between the player and the game itself. And between the intent of the author and our interpretation of the text, I guess, is my big take. It's very thought-provoking. Th- you should play it. You should. Okay, what did you think? <laughs> uh, like, like you said, it's quite. It's not a long game, um, so it's it's easy to pick up. If if anything we talk about today sounds interesting to you, if you haven't played it, uh, it came out in 2015 which I think makes it kind of ahead of the curve a bit in some of the ideas that it's engaging with. I feel like it wasn't maybe for a a few years yet that people would start really talking about things like uh, parasocial relationships to to artists or creators or whatever that you uh, admire, you know? And uh, what we really have in this game is the narrator, Davey, of course, um, who he at first presents his relationship with the game developer Coda in a light that, you know, you as it goes on, you, you come to find is, is not <laughs> quite accurate. Um, but he's really constructed this entire person and this entire, like, psychological profile of someone. It seems like he didn't know super well actually um and i i just think that maybe uh in in the past couple years even more so that when it came out it just feels really it it hits close to home i guess especially as someone who like makes stuff online (laughs) and who has not like a crazy amount but has enough people who don't know them but but is aware of them that it can get a little uh uneasy at times thankfully never uh to such a dramatic extent um as, as davy in, in this game but um 
some I was I was talking with Reese about this, um, and and he brought up something interesting, uh, which is that he sometimes thinks uh, about what it would kind of look like if we interpret Coda not necessarily as a man as well. I do believe that Davy refers to Coda as he, but we also know that mm-hmm. Davy's not reliable, and we don't even have a strong idea of how well Davy knows. Has Davy actually seen Coda in person? Maybe, I think. Right. Um, and just thinking about, like, if if we read Coda as a woman, as, like, a, a female game developer in this industry that is absolutely poisonous in how it engages with women uh, within it, uh, that I think it it also adds kind of an interesting uh, and and a more kind of pathetic yet nefarious layer to Davy as well. And I think that when you, when I, I kind of revisited the game after I played it the first time and I started sort of being, obviously knowing how it all ends, being a lot more skeptical, I guess, of any identifying or personal information that Davy gives us about Coda, given everything else we know about how Davy has constructed uh, this person and their understanding of them. And I find that the more you do that, the more uh, almost kind of frightening uh, the game becomes as well. Yeah, it like, and in that sort of, really the, it's it's a game that's very anxious, but in the most productive, interesting way I've seen in a long time, mm. because the, it, it it's, it, it is in a way kind of universalizing not just social interaction, but like social experience, I guess I should say the stuff of like, I guess like the meta, like to be annoying, the metaphysics of our social interactions is something that I've been thinking about with history recently, the stuff of history, the experience of history and what it means to feel the history in a way, uh, which I think is a big part of, people's process and i think i think i think it in some ways prefigures the way that we're able to sort of express um uh sort of our, our desires and our beliefs and that sort of a thing i do still think it sort of comes to an end at the like it, it, it still falls to the point of language which structures so so much of our experiences and the way that we express ourselves and the way that we talk to other people that, that when, when the protagonist finally has finally has a very sort of has an encounter with the fundamental gap between their perception of themselves and their behavior and their, the perception of that same behavior from the person that they're, interacting with and it's it's not reciprocated with the like you know there's a there's a point in the game where you're walking around and there's all these there's one of the games that coda developed has uh it was like sort of an imagination of what it would be like to have like a public comment section in like a game and you can kind of walk around and look at all of these various um little comments that coda made themselves uh presumably 
These weren't these weren't actually public games um, in the context of the story. But uh, um, there was one that I found really interesting that just very simply said, I would like very much to be desired. Um, and that is, in, in seeing that, Davey was like, ah, now see, this, th- th- this, is, this problem of human subjectivity, which it very much is, is here, in here being expressed within the context of feeling trapped and being unable to, you know, escape and, you know, perhaps being depressed and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's that very same sort of like diagnosis turns around and whips his ass when he realizes, oh, fuck, I have been misinterpreting all of this and I have been acting like a complete psycho. Yeah. And like, it's a very universalizing experience in an encounter with the fact that we don't know what other people think of us at any given time. And we have to have a certain amount of confidence to just sort of like, you know, like trust or have faith that we're going to come across as we see ourselves. Um, or conversely, a recognition that like this is a, we can only explore this idea that we can't concretize it to the point where we, we can't make it we we can't bring it to the surface every time that we want it to we want to so it like in its very sort of like specific story which it it it, it builds within the story the tensions of the subject um and i was referencing sort of deconstruction in particular because in the context of like if 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 everything I was just talking about language prefigures writing, well for Derrida writing prefigures speech, mm-hmm. and so rather than trying to first of all we shouldn't be trying to extract the developers quote unquote true views of the game in the first I know I see I've read some reviews and there's a lot of journalists who bless their hearts you know oh, I know that's too mean who <laughs> you know. To their you credit, can be mean to game we're trying to. On this podcast. It's okay. <laughs> well, that, that's true, but I said bless her heart, which is like, fuck you and Southern. Um, they're, uh, <laughs> they, uh, um, f- to, to their credit, they did try and come to a sort of like nuanced sort of guess of the authorial intent of the game. But I think they missed kind of the entire point when they even try to just to say this is what happened or this is what he meant is because the idea is the game itself complicates authorial intent because the idea that we can only not, not only can we discern the author's explicit purpose in some way, the idea or that authors are always writing with explicit intent in mind, Mm -hmm. but it's also that this meaning is this, the idea that we can suss this out and that the meaning is encoded throughout the work in a way that we can appropriately comprehend, understand, and sort of reconstruct that X, Y, or Z detail will take us on the path toward the true meaning of the text. So similar, so in, in, within the metatextual element, as I was talking about earlier, Davey going through the games of this other developer and 
attempting to suss out the true authorial meaning of these texts is disrupted, complicated, and deconstructed in his very sort of anxiously violent encounter. I don't mean literally violent. Uh, this sort of like, it gets really sad. Yeah. It, it's, it's sad. It's really sad. And so like the game's own interpretation within itself is getting caught in that. I was talking about ongoing process and it's demonstrating that via the gaps between these two characters and then between us and the game. Um, it makes me think of the early on in the game when you go into the room where you can see the bottom of the universe. That was fucking fire, by the way. Oh, my I God. Love, I looked down and I'm like, oh, shit. That yeah. Was, you can just see a blank plane of nothing. That was really good. And it it makes me... I feel like the the anxieties that are being spoken to um, through sort of Davy's character as well are so relatable in a lot of ways. Like um, a lot of things really stuck out to me differently when I sort of went over it a second time. Like the level with the um, the sort of fake like public uh, chat messages all throughout the level. Because um, there was a few, including the one you mentioned, saying, like, I want to be desired or whatever, where I looked at that and I'm like, Davey could have added this um, as well or amended it to just line up a little more with what he thinks it's supposed to be. Because uh, it's revealed later in the game that he is making uh, sometimes quite significant adjustments to the game because he he's he's gotten so kind of caught up in his construction of this person, right, that he... He actually starts in in a way that's kind of disturbing at times. He starts uh, almost being dismissive of things they've done and is saying, no, they, they they did this wrong or they must have been mistaken. There's a couple points where there are clearly there are there are points designed uh, as if to deter Davy, like uh, points where you cannot proceed from them. And there's this kind of flippant confidence with which he says, oh, that must be a mistake here. Let me just add a bridge. You know, uh, in a way that I, I found those moments really stood out to me. Uh, even just thinking about like on a just a basic interpersonal level, because um, I'm I'm someone who's pretty I'm I'm pretty socially confident, but also sometimes a little bit uh, dumb. And I think it can be really easy to be abrasive and to kind of like bulldoze. Uh, in social situations, in ways like that, and and do it with that level mm. of uh, of kind of thoughtless, like self assured, like oh this must be what's meant to be happening, um, like that's the way it stuck out to me. And it's like people are really fragile, and I'm including myself in that. I'm not being like oh people are so sensitive, but like as social creatures, I think yeah. that little nuanced things and in interactions can really rub us the wrong way, or really just like. A small thing can fuck up your whole day, like in, in really strange ways. And I think seeing maybe the most exaggerated, but also kind of self-aware uh, a version of those traits kind of um, embodied in Davy, I thought was really interesting. And I'm kind of realizing like, that's not a character we see very much, I don't think, in fiction. Because we, we go on this sort of journey with him as he has this like... Uh, 
as he sort of develops at the same time as we the player do an awareness of what he's actually been doing i feel like you know what it's i mean it's so universalizing in that way because it's like god i loved this game so much this is a really good choice by the way i forgot to i just i i loved it <laughs> i thought you would i i it's 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 the kind of, I mean this guy um I forget if I said before the guy who made this is the guy who made the Stanley Parable which was a game that I feel had yes. a really sort of big impact especially for such a small game um I, he just as as a as an artist this guy he's he's I I mean we're looking at two games it's not exactly like the biggest mm. track record but so far you know he's 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 consistently been able to kind of tap into something um I just think they're really they're both I think I like this one better, but I think they're both really, just really thoughtful games. As somebody who has the type of brain disease where I like to just kind of unpack and overthink, you know, every video game I can, uh, it, it, this is a treat for me. You know, <laughs> that's that's what we're here. That's what we're here for. The there's 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 the good, the bad, and the ugly, the usual fare, and then sometimes there's the very good. And this is a very good game. Like, there's so much to say. Like, there's so many aspects to it that, like, I, I don't know. Definitely the one that I really get caught up on is, and the thing that, like, really fucking, the the big kind of, uh, I, I don't know, the, the, the big wow moment for me where I was like, holy shit, this goes hard, was when it became apparent, like, the extent to which Davey was, was editing the games and and, and just this... When you, when you have, and and I feel like you can see this attitude in like fandom, for anything from fucking I don't know Mario to Dark Souls to you know non-video game things as well, like you know, any like fiction or or whatever Star Wars definitely Jesus, uh, but you can see this thing where, uh, you know people have have made up their mind in their head about what a thing is and they will develop this incredible sort of dissonance where the thing deviates from that uh and like, it must be a mistake this must be an error they don't even consider that they could be seeing something they didn't expect to see like there's the game where you're just uh tidying up like a house it's really good and and you find out that it's meant to that's the game it's just it's a loop you just are tidying up that house endlessly until you you know, you're satisfied. It's kind of like a peaceful sort of thing. You're just doing that till you've had enough and you walk away from it. Uh, but for Davey, that's like a mistake. Like he treats it like, oh, that doesn't end. Obviously it's meant to end so you can go on to the next point and like, you know, go find a lamppost um, or whatever. Uh, and, and there's, uh, there's this total violation uh, and entitlement in that sort of behavior that I really, I was thinking about the way that, that, that fandom works, the way that people who, who build an identity for themselves around really liking a, a franchise or something, the way they begin to engage with often individual artists work within that franchise. Like, um, I guess to use the Star Wars example, because all these movies are made by different people. There's games and, and comics and shit, mm. all made by different fucking people. Most of which, at this point, are not George Lucas at all. And 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 just the 
the way that people, because they like to watch Darth Vader do a, a lightsaber fight, the way that they view this collectively as a thing that like belongs to them and that they have this this dictatorial power over, and when something deviates from it, they get like really personally like angry, but also like this was a mistake, you know, like they did it wrong because I've decided what this thing is already, and I feel like. I feel like that kind of dynamic, uh, and it's it's worth thinking about what was going on in 2015 as well. Um, in media criticism and analysis, especially perhaps in 2014, mm. uh, uh, the previous year, um, in in terms of just like GamerGate and stuff, and a lot of the weird culture warification yeah. of of all media criticism, and I feel like all of that kind of shit is on is on the mind of this game. You know, you, you know. I think you really touched on something. It feels like a game. A critique of authorial intent is not just to sort of like dismantle the author mm-hmm. and remove the author, but it's to like. It's not just the. It, it. It's not fully just to like the author's death, but it's. It's that the text reaches into. Historical contingency and sort of the formations and conventions of language and all kinds of socio sociocultural formations that are sort of like I'm imagining the sort of I, I imagine every text as this sort of in an in and of itself as a as an assemblage of interacting, competing interfacilitating even discourses and then how this text in and of itself moves so it's so much more than what we think someone was trying to say but what the social world is saying through texts and culture um and how we can really sort of how, how it seeks to widen and enlarge those ideas um, because this is a game that feels and you know, and this is all just to, to now just to make a statement about how I feel about something, which just seems really <laughs> funny to me. But that was a good point. I wanted to make it. Um, it. It feels like a game that was conceived during that era of online, the sort of like the the real stabilization of the social media platforms that had grown to sort of take over the internet. Um, and their sort of fundamental connections to uh, being in the United States. Um, all we did was talk about Facebook and f- what Facebook was doing and allowing and what Facebook did and didn't do and what Facebook, how Facebook was like, like helping to cause genocides yeah. and stuff around the world. And all of this, like just this wacky fucking shit. All we do, all we were talking about are these sort of like, these uh, um, um, uh, ecosystems, social ecosystems, and their sort of intra-ecosystems that sort of all are sort of in the interconnected systems of thought and people from within all of that context. And Gamergate was a big part yeah. of that. Gamergate, the, the Hillary Clinton's fucking communications people had her talking about Gamergate. Oh my God, that was so crazy. Like, <laughs> it's like... It's it's like the pouring over of 
the interactions that this sort of like the the type of cultural formation that exists in strong conversation this is way after like you know fan forums for tv shows which was something like when i was mm-hmm. in high school and for like like i used to like i was in hardcore bands and went to punk shows and stuff and so i used to look at the forums for hardcore record labels for example the b9 bridge nine records the b9 was a cult, a forum that i used to look at just to talk about music that i like but since that's all moved over it's all it, it's not only moved over into the venture capital funded social media spaces but that has then poured over into politics and now we all like are kind of caught up in this like really in really intense sometimes very invasive and ultimately like since it's media it's mediated by venture capital not mm-hmm. good form of communication and that's kind of that's kind of taken it to the floor all the way to the ceiling but that's what this game does and that's what it asks of interpreting it it asks that you try and like speculate on the sort of like in what what does the sort of exterior social validation within the game represent it's a game that's built on gaps it, it's a game that like you you can constantly see outside of like levels and rooms sometimes you're meant to sometimes you're not meant to and all of that is just in the presentation of the inherent tension in day-to-day life and how sometimes it comes to so radically affect you and you don't realize that 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 a story as simple as like someone who unintentionally um but harmfully kind of like got a little obsessed with somebody um and, and and stepped outside of their boundaries and that that person was forced to like intervene and say stop doing mm-hmm. what you're doing um and how this and, and then in turn the f- frustrations and the tensions and their inability to clearly stop doing that because you're walking around playing these games within yeah. the game um and then the narrator's expressions of that anxiety um the sort of the 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 tension of if you can't put if you can't find peace if someone doesn't accept your apology or doesn't want to talk to you if, if that, then it exists in this sort of like it's a feedback loop of anxiety via this event that had a fundamental cha- like sort of it, 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 it's it's horrifying because it's an encounter with some of the most real stuff which is absence like we know what we what we can't do in so many instances and that sounds like a bummer but like i think it's kind of validating like and the the the, the more emotionally mature that i get the more at peace i feel as someone who's always been very anxious in their presentation and in social situations and who has a has a really strange quite frank neurotic way mm-hmm. of thinking that allows small things to grow into big things which is you know you know that's anxiety in some way sure but it's in it's in other like it's not, in my case not necessarily a dependence on the same kinds of external social validation but it's still bound within the language of socialization am i being understood correctly 
Am I speaking in the right volume to the right sort of like per to the right person for the right amount of time, passionately enough and charmingly enough, but not too much and that sort of thing. Um, that you just, you know, you, like you just try, you just try and be a good person and you try and make some peace with the fact that it's like, look, you know, sometimes it, so, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an odd duck. That's, that's fine and sometimes good, not always good, which is actually better because I don't need, I don't need to turn things into sort of superpowers. Yeah. I just need to be okay and, you know, kind of be a person, you know, I just want like that. I want a sense of peace with that instability, which is, I just think like, just, just kind of being a person And this game is like so honest about that. And how that feels an unstable sense of self can be so, can be so, um, intense and rapidly onset. Um, you can be so confident one second and then one thing happens and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh fuck. Like it, it just like you just, I don't know. I think that's really, I think that's very valuable. I think people need to hear that, you know? Yeah, and I was saying before, it's so rare to, to see th these particular ideas kind of explored at all. Um, and I think yeah. part of it is because <laughs> they're so real and so relatable, probably in some way to like most people. And that makes it even more interesting to me that the developer chose to give the narrator character his actual like name. Um even introduces himself as the guy who made Stanley Parable at the beginning. Like he's in the, within right. the game, he's presenting this as this is me. Um, yep. And I think, and it's funny cause that, that in and of itself in, invites you to, to put this autobiographical reading onto it in, in, in the way that he does yep. with Coda's games uh, in, in the game itself. But yep. The second that you make yourself that vulnerable, you 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 open yourself up to the vulnerability of that reading. All of a sudden, it's disrupted and altered, and you're forced to recognize. You're like, oh yeah, ugh. like it's crazy. yeah. And there's probably some truth to that reading. I'm it, like, there definitely is. Yeah. Like, come on, uh, j just like to uh, anyone who, who who plays this game, they're going to see themselves. I think to some degree in. Uh, in Davey, they might see themselves a bit in Coda. Uh, like I was saying before, if you've ever made stuff online, you're you know you're gonna you're gonna feel something on kind of both sides of this. Um, but it's um, I don't know. I want more games that are uh, brave enough, I guess, to to express that kind of vulnerability. Because I mean, in keeping with the themes of this game, it's. I think it's probably a lot more nerve-wracking to put out something like this that's engaging with ideas in this way than it would be to put out, like, I don't know, a military shooter. You know, you're not making yourself vulnerable to make that, necessarily. Um, and I think that we see in a lot of indie games that are made by, like, you know, one person or a small number of people, we see these these really introspective types of games that just sort of, they, they sink their teeth into like a, a single almost anxiety and, and, and just see how far they can go with it. And I find those games are often 
fucking mm. incredible. Yeah, it's so... It's just so simple, you know? I guess I get, like, pretty freaking overstimulated. Mm. And always, like, I mean, always have, for as long as I can remember, by a lot of things. I just kind of get, like, like, like my father that way. Um, I kind of find the right volumes on things and the right brightness on things. And, like, it's, the, it's a way that I can keep the sort of dull noise um of the world at a certain sort of volume despite the sort of it's ever increasing presence in our lives smaller screens brighter screens yeah you know more mobile screens and like you know i'm fine i'm not i'm not a, like a i'm not like a total like a crotchety old man i'm fine with some of this stuff but at the same time i've had to sort of examine my relationship with culture in the way that it's evolving and changing and the fact that I have bad eyesight, so I get headaches when I look at computers a lot, but <laughs> that's uh, a blessing. The, I promise. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's how make me just like go do something. I, I like read and write for a living. So it's, yeah, it doesn't yeah. work, but, uh, <laughs> the, there's, there's a lot of value in like, I want to sit down and I want to play something in one sitting and I want to think about it. It's like, it, it, it it's like, if, if, if you can be that deliberate, um, thoughtful, um, narratively honest yet uplifting in, in that honesty, I felt uplifted by not having punches pulled. I've talked, I talk about it on every podcast I'm ever on, but culture that has anything to do with culture is that contemporary culture is like goo goo gaga. Like it's like shaking. I feel like it's just shaking keys in front of my face and it really (laughs) bugs me. Well, it feels so unreal because life is so fucking brutal all the time. Yeah. Uh, And then when culture is like a padded room, it's like, what, what is this? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't capture the, the chaos sort of uh the the gap today's episode of a gap was brought to you by gaps um it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't capture the gap if you will it attempts to fill in the gap you know with spider-man or whatever you know like (laughs) it it, it's it it it, I, i i don't know you don't have to you don't have to if you want to be thoughtful you don't have to like you can you can make a game about a conversation between two people and one person's interpretations of another one's very simply made video games and still and create sort of just like buckets of meaning in the 90 minute experience that's really remarkable like it like to be able to do something like that it doesn't just remind me of the forgotten city because of its format and because of its sort of like independent, it's independent production, and the fact that they're both released, both released in 2015, which I find funny. Um, it it, but it reminds me of that um, game's willingness to play with um, experience and time to get a little 
sort of like to get to get a little into the Heideggerian side of deconstruction a little bit, which like I, I'm not into like that's that's trying to find a prefiguration to like the earliest ideas that's trying to prefigure you know Socratic philosophy in a way that like brings experience down to this like the pu- the purest essence mm-hmm. of it um uh, rather than the spirit of it sort of the hegelian spirit of it i'm like paraphrasing paraphrases at this point but i think it's it like it, it's concerned with like and i've i've i'm not heideggerian but i always find this stuff very interesting or i'm not an existentialist and i'm not a Husserlian or anything like that but at the same time if we're like what 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 it what is the like what 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 else is the prefiguration of writing if it's not that like the like the sort of like swell of feeling that forms itself into words to interpret like the the most that sort of a most immediate point of interpretation and the transition from sort of being to language like what does that look like well it's fucking scary because it's also like what it's like what dying looks like you know like bird like in the the idea within that sort of like strain of thought is that like birth and dying are both kind of horrifying mm-hmm. Because, like, none of us asked to be here. None of us asked to be born. We're just kind of thrown into the world as we are, often, almost always, literally screaming. And we have to deal with these sort of re- constantly reemerging fundamental absences. This is where, you know, myself and um, someone like the director, Terrence Malick, um, go to my YouTube channel and watch the video discussing Terrence Malick's Tree of Life with featuring one K and Skittles. Oh, I hear they're cool. Um, this is where I would, yeah, I hear, I hear they're great. Um, this is, this is where, you know, someone like Malik and I would disagree that, that attempting to find this sort of like pure essence is going to keep coming back to the, the pure essence of being is going to keep coming back to our problems of ex- our, our ability to express it. And rather I, I, I'm more interested in, the sort of struggles within subjectivity like this game that portrays the sort of, you know, like we live, we live in a, a, like in a deindustrialized society. And for a lot of people, the uh, sort of, and this, I'm sure this has been true across all kinds of human societies, but I think especially now the way that, the sort of the the sort of currency of her social interactions weighs so heavily on people's spirit <laughs> and determines their sort of like it determines their self esteem, which often determines the trajectory of big parts of their life. And it breaks my heart to see so many of us, myself included, get sort of like tangled up in a, a Silicon Valley funded web of discourse that makes us feel that that pushes us toward a reassuring idea, a, a, re, a reassured sense of self in the expression of that assured sense of self, which is paradoxical. This is what liberalism mm-hmm. does. Now go watch my video on Pitch Perfect. <laughs> uh, 
we have to perform and express and affect authenticity when just like we're all just like weird skin monsters who are just like trying to stave off that like you know the the like when you're teetering on the edge of like this gaping maw of the real and instead just trying to focus on the pretty horizon in front of us you know like it 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 it, 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 it makes you feel in the vulnerability expressed in this game and I'll shut up after this uh, you feel seen and heard and like this sort of like I could see all kinds of people getting a lot from the sort of honestly from the feelings that are expressed in the game in this game all different types of people because we're all kind of looking for the same validating sense of self that is so often disrupted it's like oh I've I've done that I've been so confident only to realize I was wrong (laughs) I was wrong I can't and it keeps you up at night and like you feel like like I felt like a, a varying degrees of like a fraud a loser a failure all kinds of things all kinds of insecurities we all feel um and it's nice to be seen that way in something like this. Yeah. And that's kind of the struggle of trying to like be a functioning person, I guess, is when you experience those points where you've been so confident and so wrong to not then overcorrect into like yes. an anxious mess who can no longer be sure of themselves because that's just going to create different Absolutely. and possibly worse problems for you for you down the way. Um, a big thing, a total kind of aside here uh, as we wrap up, but a big thing I've found since entering um, uh, academia, I guess, and starting my degree is people, especially from poorer backgrounds, really, if they're ever wrong or or made to look kind of ignorant or foolish in an educational setting, you can really see them recede into themselves in a way that's, uh, I don't know. It personally makes me very angry. I think if you're working class and you're in university, I think you need to be fucking abrasive and overconfident all the time because these inbred bourgeois dogs have never once doubted themselves and you should be ready to kill them at all times, figuratively speaking. But there is uh imposter syndrome's a real thing and it you can if you fuck up once you can just get inundated with it cuz you're going to be thinking about that fuck up and uh yeah and i think you got it's important to develop this sort of sense of being wrong once doesn't mean you need to doubt every single thing you do forever and it's easy to say but you can you can tell when people are, are sort of plagued with that, and if nothing else, let yeah. class antagonism uh, encourage you out of those habits. It's a process you have to kind of live through. Yeah. In the same way, class is a process that you live through. Actually, I think that's why it's useful to tie those things together, as you just did so well. But uh, I, I think Kay's completely right. I think be suspicious of all institutions, but particularly institutions that have to necessarily constantly reaffirm and reassert themselves in their independence, legitimacy, um, coherency, um, just importance. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying this to slag off any academics in particular. I promise I'm really not, 
Um, many academics I know are very wonderful, ambitious, thoughtful people. Um, oh, of course. Absolutely. But at the same time, a lot of them are fucking idiots. <laughs> you know, it's a mixed bag like any group of people, right? It is exactly. It is counterbalanced by academics, administrative professionals, people all over and up and down the sort of the chain in the university mm. system who are constantly in their who are in who are constantly seeking to reaffirm and assert the legitimacy of their station in the particular institution the way that institution functions in any gatekeeping mechanisms or refusal to accommodate you know you know dissenting or other voices or you know the underclassed more generally which is just true or whatever this is like there there's so much value in being suspicious of that not just in terms of like understanding what's happening in education but in terms of and this is speaking from experience in terms of finding your footing for gaining self-confidence in yourself and a recognition that like the anxiety you feel in not knowing everything is coming from a good place, but that not only does it spiral into unhealthy habits like perfectionism, again, experience, but it also is used by institutions to reassert their legitimacy by making you feel like you don't know what you're doing or that you're not smart enough or that you're not good enough. Um, and there's two things that you can do to combat that. One is by being a, uh, um, a, 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 a little shit, so to speak, <laughs> and, and doing your thing um, and asserting yourself in classes and like really like being like honestly like good old fashioned faking it till I made it really helped for me in undergrad, um, which was basically eventually I just had to be like, look, I'm paying for it. Like I finally got into a decent school after 85 years of transferring colleges. I, I, I really want to do well. And so I'm going to not feel self-conscious and I'm just going to say, fuck it. I'm going to get my money's worth is what I said to myself because college is really expensive in the United States. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm going to talk. I'm going to, I'm going to use that to develop good habits to talk and to ask questions and to make comments and to build relationships with my professors, even though sometimes they scare me <laughs> and that sort of a thing. And what do you know worked? And then it took me into graduate school too, which is even more assured in itself in its own legitimacy despite the struggles of the field of not having any jobs. And I took, it was a whole nother cycle of believing in myself for lack of a better term. And also uh, credit where credit is due having people in your life who are willing to be a dissenting voice and doubt in your own abilities, um, for which, you know, Kay has been that voice for me. Um, as well as our guests on our previous episode, yeah. probably more than anybody, my spouse who deserves so much credit in helping me build that self-esteem. Um, and yeah, it like, if you, there, there's a way to like in the, in the negativity and in, in the doubt that you place in the, 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 the assured 100% truth, capital T truth or intent of whatever it is you're approaching can also empower 
in a way. It doesn't all have to be negative, you know? Okay, I gotta shut up. Agab self-help book dropping 2023. Let's go. That's right. That's right. No, I mean, that's, that is a fucking, that's absolutely true though. And, uh, I I don't know. I I suspect that this subject, this will not be the last time that this, this is, is broached on, uh, on the podcast, especially as the, the deeper I get into, into university, the more, uh, of of the psychological in, in the most sincere way, eldritch horror of, of what, uh, lies within uh is unveiled to me and and so my own psyche cracks in response to it although i do take the i I generally take the approach of just being a little shit i'm just very uh assertive (laughs) and abrasive and like i'm gonna get my fucking money's worth uh it's not as bad as the u.s but i'm still going into fucked up debt to be here so every every fucking every every penny of value i can get out of these motherfuckers i am I'm ruthless with them. It helps that I'm in my late twenties, so a lot of like, yeah. Any, you've got like your really old established professors, but a lot of the people working there are like PhD students, and they're like my age. They're peers to me, so it's a lot easier. I was the oldest. I was some. I was one of the oldest at a at a university that, you know, runs a little Mm. old. I was frequently among the old the oldest people in my classes because most of the time I went to a. uh, a commuter campus for a really big state school in right. Florida. And uh, so you found yourself in this kind of like mixed bag or whatever. Like that's such a, that's so true, you know, that the sort of experience that you get outside of school can, gives you the like, you know, by, by the time I got around to that, because I was in the same, I was in my mid to mid to late twenties when I was an undergrad. And uh, it just like was really, you know, I don't think if you just believe I don't yourself. think 18 year olds should uh, yeah. go to university yet I think you should get a couple years I, I genuinely feel like right. if I went at 18 it would have been a huge fucking waste and I see a lot of these kids and it's like you're not even sure what you're doing here Where, whereas when you see people who are even just like a couple years older who, who've gone there's this uh, a, awareness of what they're doing and self-assurance and like taking sort of initiative with their education that is so different and it's like, I think people should maybe wait till they're 20, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty fucking inclined to agree at this point. Yeah. 18-year-olds are too busy exploring their freedom. They just fucking moved out for the first time or whatever. Like, you're not. You need a couple years to get that out of your system before you should be, like, what are you going to do, study the Roman Republic? Give me a fucking break, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I I enjoyed studying the Roman Republic at 18, mm-hmm. but I needed to I needed two years to be like, to just be to be like hey hey you're you're gay that's yeah that's another thing uh you got to figure out that you're gay i, was, you, I you wasn't need a gay enough years to gay it up you got to figure out that yeah that's gay. like by law yeah, you, you, just so we're clear yeah. in joe biden's america <laughs> exactly that's all right. right we should on that note we should wrap it up uh where can the good people find you you can find me at Labor Kyle on Twitter and YouTube, but really where you should be finding me besides at your local uh, AGAB dealer is on the Zero Bucks YouTube channel. Episode two of a show called Profane Illuminations is just dropped a couple oh, days yeah, ago. Oh, yeah, I need to fucking, I need to sit down um, with that. I'm so excited. It's uh, myself and the Lit Crit guy host the show, um, and this is... It's really like I'm I, I 
I, I, I spent so much fucking time on that thing. I am unapologetically hawking it no matter what, but at the same time, I'm incredibly proud of the work that we did on this episode, especially. Um, and we've already started production on episode three, which is going to be on work. Um, and I, I'm even more excited about that. That there's a lot, there's a lot, it's a lot going on. Just go. Yeah. At profane show on Twitter. If that's your guy, if that's your game or zero books on YouTube, you'll find profane illuminations. There's two episodes out so far. Uh, please go and watch that. Um, so, uh, repeater will keep paying us to make this show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Where, where do you live online? Keep an eye on Kyle, folks. My man's going places. I, on the other hand, am going to join the Taliban soon, I think. Nice. Uh, <laughs> you're taking gamers me. now. They're taking gamers now. They now have a designated gamer battalion. So I'm thinking <laughs> it's got to be done. Uh, you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at Kay and Skittles. Uh, uh, parody, non actionable. Uh, you can <laughs> find my very good and, as the kids say, pogged out. Um, uh, uh, YouTube videos at <laughs> K and Skittles. I recently put one out on, uh, oh, fuck, not that recently anymore. Uh, but I put out one on um how the media constructs narratives about protests, which uh YouTube has meddled with a bit. So I'd appreciate if people go watch it and uh follow follow this podcast on Twitter if you don't already. Uh, at AgabPod, I'm pretty sure. Hold on, I should double yep, check. That's it. Yeah, at Agapod. Follow us. We might post like Mario with a big dick or something, and then you'll be like, "Yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I got involved in this. Very good. All right." Yeah, it's a lot of like, "What is what is Sanic doing today?" Kind of posting, and you know, honestly, it's not bad. What is he doing today? <laughs> you know, I think you know. Anyway. <laughs> gamers are bastards.